One of the reasons I believe that Paul says you have to work out your salvation with fear and trembling is because many people think they are saved, but they are not necessarily saved. Hello and welcome to the Love Key Church podcast, where we share our church's message of the week. My name is Heinz Winkler, and together with my wife, children, and our leadership team, we host Love Key Church here in Somerset West, online, and on this podcast. It is our mission to help you to encounter God, align with His purposes, reign in life, and help others to do the same. We trust that you will find this message empowering, encouraging, and inspiring. Please share it with your friends and family and write a review for us. And a huge thank you goes out to those who have already done so. May you be thoroughly blessed as you listen to this message. God is good all the time. Boy, I saw a, <laughs> I saw a little meme this week where a burglar broke into a Christian's house and he was looking to attack the Christian and he couldn't find him. So he went, God is good. And the Christian goes, all the time. <laughs> That's how you catch them out. <laughs> I thought that was very dark, but funny. <laughs> anyway, guys, I'd like to take a moment and just pray for my brother Harvey with you trust for his healing. Amen. Let's close our eyes. Father God, you are the healer. You are the one who says in your word that by your stripes, we are healed. You are the one in your word that says, if two or more gather and agree on a matter, it will be so. And, if, and you say in James 5 that if anyone is sick, let them come to the elders, let them lay hands on them, anoint them with oil, and pray in the name of the Lord, and they will rise healed. So Lord, on all these scriptures and many more, we stand this morning, we call it into your remembrance, and we bring your son, Harvey, before you, and we ask, Father God, that you will come and Bless him with healing power. We say in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Harvey de Lange is healed in Jesus' name. And we thank you that you strengthen him right now. We come against any and all things that might be attacking him. We cancel it. We bind it in the name of Jesus. And we loose the health of God over him and his household in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Thank you, Father. We look forward to the testimony. Good morning, church. So good to see you here. Um, we're going to pray for all the open spaces for those who couldn't make it this morning. Couldn't, maybe didn't want to, maybe still sleeping. I don't know. It was a late night. But you guys are warriors. Thanks for being here. <laughs> I appreciate it. It's so good to be in the house of the Lord and um, to be with you. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to gather with you. I am more excited to be here with you than I was last night when the box won. I really, I really am. I really am. And, and you know, I, I think it's amazing. And I know that this does wonders for the morale of the nation. It's, it is. And it's, it's great. And I, I love all the positives. But I've seen this happen before, and I've seen it wane over time. And there's this initial excitement, and it's awesome, and, and it's great. But a few months down the line, we wake up, and the same problems we had, we still have. And the only solution to our nation's problems is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. 
It's not the Springboks. That's great when they win. We love it. But it's Jesus Christ. And we need to remember that. And we need to stand on that word. Amen? Come on. He is our only Savior. He is our only Redeemer. He is our only change agent for the better. And He's the only one who connects us to eternity. Amen? And we have to stand on that and remember that. So good. All right. We are continuing with 2 Corinthians. We're doing chapter 7 today. And my message heading is, sorry, not sorry. Sorry, not sorry. That's a bit of a a modern take on something that Paul says in this part of his letter. And um, as we go along, I think you'll understand why that's the heading. But I, I wanted to ask you this morning, have you ever said sorry or apologized to someone, but you didn't mean it? You just said it convincingly enough that they would get off your back, right? You just said, okay, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. But it wasn't really heartfelt. Anyone guilty of that? Okay, now say, I'm a liar. (laughs) Jesus, I repent, forgive me. (laughs) You're laughing, but it's true. (laughs) Have you ever said sorry or apologized to appease an insecure, manipulative, controlling person just to keep the peace. Anyone? All right. Kind of the same as the first, but a little different. On the first one, you're like convinced that you're right. How many husbands in the room? I know I'm right, but someone told me to say I'm sorry first. So I'm just going to say I'm sorry, even though I really think I'm right. (laughs) When, uh, When my wife and I got married... One of the pastors uh, that we had from every nation, I said, listen, if you had some advice for me, what would it be? He said, the best advice I have for you is what my wife and I do. We have a competition in our marriage. The competition is who can say sorry first. My wife looked at him. She looked at me. She said, this one, you can win. Every time. Now, if you know how competitive my wife is, that's even funnier, but it's the one competition she's happy to lose. (laughs) Have you ever had someone apologize to you, but you sense that maybe they didn't really mean it? Anyone? All right. Have you ever been that person that says, I will forgive them if they apologize? Have you ever had someone apologize to you in a sarcastic way or a rolling eyes kind of way? Oh, I'm sorry. Says every parent everywhere. Yes, I know. Or maybe even someone did this to you. They said, sorry, not sorry. Now, this is the interesting thing we're going to see in two different ways in 2 Corinthians 7 today. So we're going to dive into that piece of scripture and uh, we're going to start from verse 1. Now, we have to remember that Paul is busy with one letter to one church and there's a continuous thought right throughout this message. Last week, we spoke about being set apart. And um, I'm going to read this first verse and then we're going to jump back to that just to get the context. Because in verse 1, it says, Therefore... Well, now, when a sentence starts with therefore, you should know it is linked to what's been happening up until now, right? 
Therefore, having these promises, Paul says, beloved, he loves them so much. Let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. How powerful is that? Let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting, that's a continuous tense, it comes back to our sanctification, holiness in the fear of God. Now, what promises is he referring to? He's referring to the previous few verses, 2 Corinthians 6, 16 to 18. And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. And God has said, how many of you know if God said something, it's going to happen? Because he's not a man that he should lie. God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And then Paul says, because this is true, Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the almighty God. So it's the same idea said twice because Paul is quoting from the Old Testament and he's saying to them, this is the promise that God will come and live with you, in you, among you and be your father. That's a powerful idea. And to a Jewish mind at that time, it was completely unheard of. And now he says, having these promises, so the promise that God will come and dwell among you and be your father, because of this promise, let us cleanse ourselves. Who's going to clean you? No, but Jesus did everything on the cross. Yes, he did. But why would he then say, cleanse yourself from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness and the fear of God? The same Paul is the one who writes uh, Romans 12. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He didn't say, go and lie down. The Holy Spirit will plug a cord into your head and he will cleanse you. It's by the power of the Holy Spirit, but we actually have to drop everything. But we actually have to step out by faith, trust that it's possible, and present ourselves and make ourselves available. Amen? And this is what he's saying. Let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. In, he says the same. Excuse me. He says the same to the Colossians in Colossians 3. He says... A list of things to put off. And then he says a list of things to put on. Put off the things of the world. Put on the things of the spirit. And he says to the church, to you. We each of us need to hear this and go, okay, I need to be in a position of faith and relationship because of the promises of God, I need to now cleanse myself from all filthiness of the flesh and the spirit. Do I cleanse myself in terms of my own strength? No. Because Paul also writes that it's by faith, through, through, uh, by faith, by grace, through faith, by the power of Christ. Amen? So we take all of these things together and so we understand that we have a part to play, but it's not by our strength. Amen? What is the ultimate goal? Perfecting us into a position of holiness in the fear of God. 
What is the fear of the Lord? The fear of the Lord, I will tell you first what it's not. It's not being scared of God, like you are scared of a dark figure moving in the night. Amen? Being scared pulls you away from something. Having a, a healthy, holy fear of God is understanding that he is infinitely greater than you are, that you have all the need of him and he is none of you, and that you are totally dependent on him for every breath that you take. And an understanding that he is great and worthy of all the praise, honor, and love that you have to give. And you come before him humbly and you say, Lord, here I am. Work with me. Help me. And that is a position of the fear of the Lord. What is the opposite of the fear of the Lord? Rebellion. Pride. Cockiness. Thinking I deserve something. Entitlement. That's the opposite of the fear of the Lord. Verse 2, it continues. Paul says, open your hearts, he says to the church, to us, who? The ministers of the gospel. He says, we have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have cheated no one. I do not say this to condemn, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Now, if you haven't been with us for a while, you will maybe not know why, what's the point of 2 Corinthians. The 2 Corinthians is a reaction to stuff that happened since he wrote 1 Corinthians. And one of the things that happened was that the Corinthian church is offended by his first letter because he had very strong language. And now, and some people have been infiltrating the Corinthian church and telling them lies about Paul, Paul's character, Paul's uh, his legitimacy as a minister of the gospel, they've bad-mouthed him. They've tried to convince people not to listen to him, all right? And, and now he's trying to say to them everything, and we saw it in the previous chapter as well, everything we've done, we've done for you out of love. He's, he keeps on trying to tell them this, and this is a version of that as well. For I've said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. That, can you see how passionate that language is? Can you see how much he loves these people? All right, he, he continues and says, great is my boldness of speech towards you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. He goes around telling everyone how great they are. I'm filled with comfort. I am exceedingly joyful in all our tribulation. Excuse me, what? Exceedingly joyful in all our tribulation. What did the same Paul write in Romans 5 verse 3? He said, glory in tribulation. Because it builds character and character gives you hope and hope will not disappoint. And he's another guy, James, writes in James 1, count it all joy when trials of various kinds come your way. Because then you will become perfect, complete, lacking nothing. Now Paul has this attitude, I'm exceedingly joyful in all our tribulation. Woohoo! Life sucks, I'm excited. <laughs> this is the Christian attitude. But the difference is Paul knows that he knows that what he is struggling through, the tribulation he's experiencing is all for the gospel. It's not for himself. And this is what he's trying to get across. Sometimes we want to take scripture and apply it to the problems we've caused or discomfort we experience that has nothing to do with suffering for the gospel. I go, I'm suffering for Jesus. No, you're not. 
I'm exceedingly joyful. He says, for indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts, inside were fears. Nevertheless, they were attacked from the outside and the inside. And it says, nevertheless, God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. And we see here how God works through people. It says, and not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you. When he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, says Paul, so that I rejoiced even more. So they sent Titus out to go and check how things are going. And Titus came with a great report of what is going on. And it continues. He says, verse 8, For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I regret it. Sorry, not sorry. Do you see that? For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I regret it. Do you get my title now? For I perceive that the same epistle, the same letter, made you sorry. That was 1 Corinthians. And what happened there was he confronted a situation where a son was sleeping with his father's wife. And no one did anything about it. And he stepped in and said, I'm judging this guy. I've given him over to Satan so that his soul can be spared. Imagine that authority in the spirit. He says, for I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. So you were sorry, not sorry. I am sorry, not sorry. You also were sorry and then not sorry. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow, listen to this, led to repentance. That your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. What is Paul saying? He's saying that I wrote to you hard words that challenges your flesh. But it needed to be challenged because you were either blinded or, or you were ignoring what was going on in your midst. And it was sin that was carrying on and carrying on and carrying on and no one did anything. And this is not to be a part of you. What did he just tell them in the previous chapter that we read? Do not be unequally yoked with people that are unbelievers. Come out from among them. Be set apart. Be consecrated. And we discussed the whole thing of, yeah, but how do we serve the world? How do we impact the world if, if that is our, our approach? And we got a very clear message that, no, it's not about, we, we need to know that we can never be compromised when we go into the world. The world cannot influence us. We always have to be the light and influence the world. So I was trying to warn us to not be the cocky Christians that think, I can go alone into dark places and change everybody's lives. But then meanwhile, they pull you down into their world. Amen? Yeah, but Jesus went to the sinners. Yeah, but Jesus was Jesus. The perfect son of God who never sinned. You need at least one buddy to go with you and keep you accountable. Amen? And remember, we are the light of the world, and we need to shine our light, yes, but we can never do it in such a way where we have part of someone who's an unbeliever. And that's what Paul made very clear in the previous chapter. And now he continues this idea. He says, 
because you had this thing happening and did nothing about it, I had to write you a hard letter. I had to, dare I say, offend you. And you took it and you had to wrestle with it and you were sorry that that happened and my letter made you sorry. And he said, I'm sorry I had to write it because it's like, oh, it's when you have to tell a good friend something that's really awkward and tough to tell them like, yeah, bro, I love you, but this area of your life, this thing that keeps coming up, I don't know, man, I have to bring it to the light and it's not lacquer. I'm sorry that I have to tell you this, but I'm also not sorry because I think it's a blind spot. And because I love you so much, I'm going to tell it to you in as much love as I can, but you have to hear it. Conversely, I have to go, am I ready to hear that from someone who loves me? That, hey, Heinz, I need to tell you, bro, there's this thing I see in your life. I'm sorry to tell you, but I'm also not sorry. You need to work on this. Amen? We all have to have these people in our lives that can tell us these things and we need to decide beforehand, I will not take offense. I will take it to Jesus, measure it to the word of God. And if what they are saying is true, I need to repent. And I need to say, I'm sorry. And I need to change the way I live. Amen. So he says he's happy that sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. So he says, our words is not what hurt you and we did not take anything away from you. What happened was we were the vehicle to point out an important thing that was blinding you and stopping the flowing of God's blessings in your midst and you saw it and you took it. Now it's between you and God. So it's like we delivered the message, it's not about us. It's about you and God. Can you see that? Now he continues in verse 10, he says, for, so he just said, for you were made sorry in a godly manner. And he says in verse 10, for godly sorrow, so there's a type of sorrow. There's a type of being sorry. Godly sorrow produces, everyone say produces. It makes, it creates, it follows. Godly sorrow does something. It produces repentance. Not only that, repentance leads to salvation. And it's not to be regretted. Sorry, not sorry. Can you see it? But, oh, there's another type of sorrow, and the word but, which is very important. The sorrow of the world produces, everyone say produces, death. Your, how many of you would like to have death produced in your life? Anyone? So the, yeah, I'm sorry. Or, yeah, Lord, I know, I know I did it again. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Just, you know, just forgive me. Worldly sorrow produces death. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. Now he goes on to talk about, not only that godly sorrow produce repentance leading to salvation, now repentance and salvation had babies. Repentance and salvation produced something as well. He said, what did they produce? Diligence. What clearing of yourselves. 
He was just telling them to be cleansed. Now he says that sorrow, godly sorrow that led to repentance and salvation has this very effect. That they are now clearing themselves. What indignation. Indignation is being upset, being angry, being worked up about something. And I'm like, why is that there? But then I realize it's when you get a holy anger for sin. You don't want this anywhere near you. You're like, godly sorrow produces that holiness in you that you don't want any part of this stuff. It can't be part of you, can't be in your midst. It will be addressed, it will be sorted out. What fear, fear of God. What vehement desire, a strong, passionate desire to live for God. What zeal, same thing, zeal for Jesus. And what vindication, what freedom, what setting up, um, what set freedom is, is a part of what happens here. In all things, you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. How powerful is that? We need to stop for a moment and think. Each of us need to take a moment today and go, what is there in my life? A habit, a thing that I do. I know if we get really personal, it's, it's in the things that you excuse yourself on a regular basis. The things that, you know, I choose to justify. Your but. And ugh, it's not that bad. And no, but Jesus and I, you know, we understand each other. When people talk like that, you know, people, you know, Jesus and I, we've got, a, got this understanding. I'm like, really? Your understanding with him is different than what his word says? Uh, I don't think so. There's one God, one Son, Jesus Christ, one Holy Spirit, one Word of God. And that doesn't change. Yes, he made you unique. Each of us is unique. Amen? He has a plan for us. He loves us. Yes. He loves us all uniquely, which is great. But you can never in any way, shape, or form says, this word of God that says that I may not curse, that I may not use foul language, that I may not gossip, that I may not get drunk, that I may not make money my God, that some of it applies to me, some of it applies not to me. Yeah, this, this applies to that person because they really have a problem. But for me, you know, I can, I can kind of slide by because what I'm doing is really, it's not that bad. And we do that, right? We have these inner conversations. Ach, jylle weet waarvan ek praat. Ach, it's okay. The grace of God the grace is so great. Do you know what the grace of God is for? It's to empower you to live holy. That's what gr the grace of God does. It's power to live holy the way he wants us to live. It's not an excuse to do what you want. Yeah, but he'll forgive me. If you sin on purpose with the backup plan B that he will forgive me so I'm going to there's a very special verse for that in Hebrews 10 that you don't want to read it's going to scare stuff out of you because it says there if you sin willingly out of rebellion you trample 
on the cross of Jesus Christ, you crucify him again. And it actually says there's no grace for you. It's a very scary verse. There's a reason why the Bible tells us, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Guys, we serve a holy God. His holiness has not become less holy as the world has become more corrupt. His holiness actually becomes more and more clear the more and more the world goes corrupt. And the the prophets, they said, in the end times, they will call what's good evil and what is evil good. And that's what's happening. But we can easily be indoctrinated by the world if we do not spend enough time in the word of God that this soak into us. Because I know what it's like. You can read this, you can hear this, and you can walk out there, go sit at your desk at your job tomorrow, and you're surrounded by people who speak completely differently. And you get sucked right back in. And the first thing that happens to your mind is like, ah, did God really say does the Bible really, is it really that bad? Is it really that strict? Is, it, is God really that holy? Ah. And the doubt starts and the thoughts start and the changes come. Why? Because it's much easier for us to hear that oh, God will accept me just the way I am and I can just continue the way that I am forevermore and His grace is sufficient. But that's not what the Bible teaches and that's not the gospel. The gospel is that any unbeliever can come as they are, yes, and get saved, yes, by Jesus Christ. There's grace, your sins are forgiven, you are washed clean, absolutely. You are justified. But then that very moment you start your journey of sanctification, which is a call to live holy, where the justification that you step into now has a consequence and the thing that you will feel immediately is how the world's going to try and pull you back. You're going to have zeal and excitement. And you know how these first, first-time believers are? I was the same way. I'm going to lead everyone to Jesus. Have you heard? Have you heard? Have you heard? Two weeks go by. They're like, my whole world is falling apart. I thought if I love Jesus, everything will be great. But now look at me. What happened? The honeymoon phase ended and it got real. Everyone who's married will know something about this. There's a day that you leave the bathroom with so much peace. And then there's this person in your life that now points to the toilet and just asks, and this? And you go, what do you mean, lovey? This is not acceptable. This needs to be. But it's up when I come here. It's down when I come here. And you realize the honeymoon phase might be coming to an end. Conflict enters at some point. Because you are now a new creation running around in a broken world. And the enemy is not happy that you were born again. And he's even less happy when you get baptized. Because when you get baptized, you were actually obedient to the word of God. It's like, whoa, 
I can deal with people who are cultural Christians, but I can't deal with these Christians who actually believe the word of God and does what it says. Like, oh my word. They're going to change the world. Can't have that. I'm going to have to convince them. Uh, uh, oh, sprinkle babies with water. Yes. That takes out the whole problem. Okay, wonderful. Let's convince them that that's baptism. Woo. Dodge the bullet. Everyone who has really been saved and who were baptized with understanding and by faith will know what I'm talking about. Everything changes if you do it God's way. You are then registered in the spiritual realm. The demons sit up and recognize you. They will not ask like they ask some in the Bible, Jesus we know, Paul we know, but who the heck are you? They will not ask that about you. They will know you because you are registered in the Spirit. Choosing to follow Jesus is not supposed to be easy. It's going to cost you everything, every day. And I know, I, I can preach a different message and we can fill this hall and we can fill many other halls if I pray stuff that, preach stuff that's more nice on the ears, I know. But I'm repeating what the Bible says. I'm literally reading it and conveying it to you and bringing it in a modern, maybe in a bit more of a modern way. But this is what the Bible says. We serve a holy God who has called his people to be holy. You can't get around this. You can't interpret your way out of this. It's the way it is. And, and, and I, I had a moment last week where, that I really feel was a Holy Spirit inspired moment where, where I realized Paul is mostly just reminding Christians that they are Christians. You signed up for this. Now you actually have to live that way, right? In this week, we, we had a, a thing where one of my boys accidentally broke one of the school rules. It wasn't on purpose. It was negligent. But uh, he, he, he forgot to switch off his phone and hand it in. And then it rang. And they took it away because that's the rules. They confiscated for two weeks. And I'm like, hallelujah. <laughs> no, but it's, it's, it's a... I mean, I understand what happened, and it's, it's unfortunate, and he, he, he wasn't on, purposefully, on, on purpose doing anything wrong. But the consequences were hard, and it hit him. And then we had this whole conversation. They're like, how can you just let the school take the phone? I'm like, I'm not letting them take the phone. I signed a document when I put you in the school where I made a commitment on your behalf that we together are going to follow the rules of the school. And the rules of the school say that if this happens, that's the consequence. I signed. So we are bound. I did go and speak to them and ask if there's any way they can get it. And they said, no. And I said, okay, I respect your authority. I honor you. Now, what I find fascinating is that people who put their kids in schools and sign a form made up by people, and some of those people are lawyers, <laughs> and you choose to sign it, or you go and work for a company, 
and the company gives you a document and says, this is our rules. This is how things work around here. If you want to work for us, you've got to sign this. And what do you do? You sign it. Why? Because you want that salary. Now, we sign these things. We bind ourselves to all these commitments. Now, when you do something that's contrary to the document that you signed, you understand you were wrong. And you submit, probably, to the consequences. But what do many people do with the word of God, with their relationship with Jesus Christ? They get, they get into a place where they hear the gospel, they go, this sounds cool. I will try this. I'll sign up for Jesus. I'll sign up for this Christian thing. And then they say, I give my life to Jesus. They say words that are binding, spiritually legal language. I give my life to Jesus. I proclaim that you are Lord and Savior of my life. And from today, I will, I will follow you. But when it gets hard, when it gets real, when I start seeing what it means to actually walk a holy life, when I, when I am confronted with the first moment where I have now went against God's word, which is infinitely more important and weightier than a contract with a school or an employer, I go, nope, I'm out. This is uncomfortable. This is inconvenient. This doesn't suit me. This doesn't work for me. This is not what I signed up for. <clears throat> Actually, it is. You die, he lives through you. You do his will, you lay down everything that is stuck to you because of this broken world. Then you will have joy everlasting, peace everlasting, while you suffer on this earth. That's the gospel. Let's do it. And I know some people were maybe told a half gospel and they got sucked into something because they weren't told the whole story. Whenever I lead people to Jesus, I try to make it as clear as possible that in this moment you choose to die to yourself. This was what the gospel say. And everything after that is you keeping on dying to self and coming more and more alive in Christ because it's a process for us. And God is in the process with us. But if we do not come humbly with an attitude of godly sorrow for when we do go against God's will, we will not grow. We will stay stuck. Or you can actually, well, I have to be careful how I word this. One of the reasons I believe that Paul says you have to work out your, your, your salvation with fear and trembling is because I think it's in, it, many people think they are saved, but they are not necessarily saved. And then they have a very casual approach to Jesus. Having a relationship with the creator God and his son Jesus Christ and being led by the Holy Spirit is the most serious thing in your life. It cannot be handled flippantly. It cannot be handled sort of by the way. 
And there are things in this world that are way more enticing for our flesh. Like staying up till 11 to watch rugby and then still hanging out with friends for another hour or two, knowing that you're not going to go to church tomorrow. And I'm, I'm saying it. And I'm going to offend people. But I don't care. Because it shows us what's more important when it really counts. It does. And you know what? Jesus said, narrow is the gate. And narrow is the way, and few find it. Broad is the gate, and broad is the way that many will go on. And we each have to decide, which way am I going to go? I don't want to build a popular church. I want to build a church that pleases Jesus. I want to build a church that Paul will say about, you, you make me happy. Because when you heard the word that was hard, you had godly sorrow. And that godly sorrow led to repentance. And that led to salvation. And that led to many other things. Diligence, clearing yourselves, indignation, fear, vehement desire, zeal, and vindication. That is what we want to see in our church. Along with everything else we've been reading up until this point. We continue in verse 13. Therefore... Although I wrote to you, I did not do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong. This is now referring to the person that he took on in, the, in 1 Corinthians. I, didn't, I did not do it for the sake of him who had done wrong, nor for the sake of him who suffered wrong. So it's like, I'm not talking about the one who sinned and the one who was wronged by the sin. But that our care for you in the sight of God may, might appear to you. I did that. I stood up for the truth because I love you. I pointed out the thing that was detracting you, distracting you from God because I love you. Can you see that? Therefore, we have been com comforted in your comfort and we rejoiced exceedingly more for the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For if in anything I have boasted to him about you, I'm not ashamed. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, even so our boasting to Titus was found true. And listen to this. And his affections, Titus's affections, are greater for you as he remembers the obedience of you all. With how with fear and trembling you received him. Therefore I rejoice that I have confidence in you in everything. Work out your faith, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, okay? Receive, Titus goes back and says to Paul, hey, these people receive me in fear and trembling. What does that mean? They received him with honor because he's a man of God. They received him as a sent one from Paul and the others. They treated him as if he was one of their own. They treated him with love. They respected him, they revered him, and they looked after him. But what was he mostly impressed by? The obedience of them all. The obedience to God's word. The obedience to what has happened. Now, we have to realize this whole thing was about a possible offense. Something happened in this church. Paul is coming at them saying, hey, this is wrong, you've got to sort it out. Now there's the moment where they can go, I'm going to either be offended and say no, and that happened to some. 
which is why he wrote the letter. It gave a gap for the false prophets and the other people to come in and say, yeah, but this guy did this and this guy did that and gossip, gossip, gossip and lead people down a wrong trail, break the reputation of Paul and the others, that they have to write this letter and set the record straight. But the beautiful thing is that they had a moment where they could have been offended and maybe some of them were, but as a whole together, they decided, no, we have to listen. We're going to turn and we're going to say, with a godly sorrow, we really realize that this was wrong. This is not who we are. And we turn to God and we say, Lord, forgive us. Wash us clean. Make us new. Restore us. We want to follow you wholeheartedly. Amen. Instead of going, oh, I'm sorry, whatever. Let's just move on, you know. Paul will be, Paul, he will do his thing. We'll just tell him that everything's fine. But no, Titus was there. He was an eyewitness to the genuine, genuine turn of hearts. And he could see it in the fruit. Their obedience to God and the way that they treated him. If they were offended, they would treat the one sent by Paul with a lot less respect. Amen. And Titus could be, no, they really changed. God really worked in their hearts. What a beautiful thing. Amen. All right. I didn't plan this beforehand, but I want to end with a song where we come before God and as a whole, individually and as a whole, we just say, Lord, if there's anything standing between me and you, I want to just repent with complete godly sorrow. Godly sorrow is you coming low before God with a humble heart, a contrite heart. That, that verse that I read before the worship, Psalm 51, says God doesn't want burnt offerings. He doesn't want all these things that are you know, from your own strength. What he wants is a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. Broken, why? Because I realized I've gone against his will. So much more important than any contract I can sign, it's the word of God that I said I will commit my life to. And Lord, I have gone against your word and you will know, the Holy Spirit will show you if there's any area or any one thing in your life that you need to bring to the altar today. And say, Lord, I repent. And why do we do this? Because the promise is that what godly sorrow produces is, is, is what we all want. A life that's clean, that's pure, that's holy, that's in beautiful intimacy with our Father in heaven. Do you know the prize that we are actually living for is being in such communion with our Holy Father that no matter what is going on in our lives, we still have joy, we still have peace, we still know where we're going, and we still know who's with us, amen? As hard as the word is that I shared with you today, I'm also sorry, not sorry about that because we need to hear this. And we need to let it move us. We need to let it change us so that we can become the children of God that he wants us to be. Amen? We all at one point fell short of the glory of God and we need Jesus. And all of us realizes this at one level or another. And if you are here today and you've never given your life to Jesus, this is also your moment to go, I want to give my life to Christ. But if you've been journeying with him for a while, like I think many of us have, and you realize today, yo, I've, I've gone 
to a place of, of, of familiarity with God. I've gone to a place of excusing certain behaviors, certain things coming out of my mouth when emotion rises. That's not who I am. It's not who I am in Christ. I've thought thoughts against people. That's not God. I, I serve money more than I serve God. I cannot go without my drink, one, two drinks every night. I need to bring all these things before God. Let us get rid of any and all things that can in any way, shape, or form keep us back from the fullness that Christ has for us. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to the Love Key Church podcast, Message of the Week. I trust that you had a life-changing encounter with God that will help you to align with His purposes so that you can be one step closer to reigning in life. And may you be inspired to share this with others. Have a great week and remember to listen again next week or you can catch us live online or come visit us in person. May God bless you and keep you. Make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you and your loved ones. God bless you. Bye-bye.